welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. Before this episode begins, I just wanted to warn everyone, and particularly my regular listeners, that this episode is long. The reason for this extra length is because I don't really want to give you just info on the recent protests that you can find on any news site, and I also didn't want to just present a decontextualized history of Hong Kong. What I try and do in this episode is integrate the modern with the historical so that the present-day developments in Hong Kong society and politics can be seen from the perspective of the transition from colony to special administrative region. How well I actually succeed in doing that is up to you guys, I guess. In any case, I intend for this episode to be the first in at least two, possibly three episodes covering Hong Kong and recent protests that have been occurring here. This episode is specifically about the historical context of the protests and Hong Kong's relationship with mainland China since the late 1970s and early 1980s. The next episode will be about opposition to the protests and will take a deeper look at those who question the legitimacy of the protesters and their demands. First, let's start by outlining what the recent protests have been all about. On Sunday the 9th of June 2019, at 2.30pm, starting from Victoria Park between the neighbourhoods of Tin Hao and Wan Chai, around 1 million Hong Kong residents took to the streets in possibly the biggest protest the territory had ever seen. They were protesting the implementation of an amendment to the pre-existing Fugitive Offenders Ordinance and the Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Ordinance, which is known as the Fugitive Offenders and Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters Legislation Amendment Bill. Uh, But we'll just call it the Extradition Bill for short. They objected to what they saw as an overreach by the mainland Chinese government, a threat to human rights and freedom of speech in Hong Kong, and they demanded that the bill be retracted and the chief executive of Hong Kong, Carrie Lam, step down. A hot debate has raged between the supporters and detractors of the protest as to whether or not the bill actually says what they think it says, or whether their fears, and therefore their reactions, are overblown. Now, I have read through both the original ordinances and the proposed amendments, but to be honest, there's a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo, and what we really want to know is what the changes to the bill actually mean for anyone who it might affect. So first, I just want to give a basic rundown of the contents of the bill. The existing two pieces of legislation cover the rules and regulations by which Hong Kong can assist with legal cases pending against individuals in other jurisdictions, particularly with regards to surrendering a person wanted for a crime in another jurisdiction. It also covers the reverse, so when other governments can surrender people or information to Hong Kong, or generally provide legal assistance. In both of these ordinances, it's stated quite clearly near the beginning that it applies to a place, quote, other than the central people's government or the government of any other part of the People's Republic of China. These other places are 20 countries in the case of extradition and 32 governments in the case of legal assistance. The FOO covers 46 crimes, ranging from severe crimes like murder, assault, sexual crimes, drugs and theft, to financial crimes like those relating to trading, securities, bankruptcy, to crimes regarding the perversion of justice, piracy and other sea-related crimes, aiding and abetting, and child exploitation. Some of these crimes are a little vague, such as offences relating to women and girls, 
or conspiracy to commit fraud or unlawful use of a computer and seem like they're pretty open to interpretation. Something tells me that this is the root of the problem for a lot of people, but we'll get to that shortly. So the proposed changes to these ordinances brought forward in the extradition bill basically fall into two broad categories. The first is the creation of what is referred to as special surrender arrangements, which basically means that requests for extradition or cooperation from governments with which Hong Kong does not have an existing extradition treaty can be decided on a case-by-case basis. The second category of change is the lifting of the geographical scope of the ordinances, meaning that mainland China, Macau and Taiwan will now be brought into the scope of these ordinances. Further additions to the first category include the fact that only 37 of the 46 extraditable crimes will be included in the special surrender cases, and that these crimes must be punishable for at least seven years in Hong Kong. Suspects or criminals cannot be extradited for political crimes, and the crime for which they are being extradited cannot be punishable by death. Now, I'm not a legal expert, so this is based off of other reports that I've read and my own understanding of the existing ordinances and proposed bill. So if you know that I've made a mistake and feel I should make a correction, please don't hesitate to reach out to me and let me know. There are two main reasons cited by the Hong Kong government as to why this bill needs to be pushed through as soon as possible, despite the fact that the deadline for the period of transition of Hong Kong to the mainland is still almost 30 years in the future. The first is to deal with the case of Chan Tong Kai, a Hong Kong resident who admitted to murdering his girlfriend on a trip to Taiwan last year after she revealed she was pregnant with another man's child. Despite Taiwan's request, Hong Kong officials refused to extradite Chan to Taiwan as there is no formal extradition agreement between the two jurisdictions. And in Hong Kong, Chan has only been tried for money laundering, which carries a maximum penalty of 14 years imprisonment. The second reason cited by the government is that the extradition legislation formulated during the handover talks between Britain and China leave a loophole that doesn't allow for collaboration between China and part of its own sovereign territory. It's worth noting that since the announcement of the proposed changes to the legislation, both of these reasons have been basically debunked by legal professionals, journalists, former Hong Kong politicians and even entire nations. In the first instance, Taiwan came out and was like, no, we don't think this particular case is a good enough reason to change an entire legal system. And they made it clear that Taiwan would not receive the murder suspect whose case triggered the proposal or any other criminal who would be extradited solely due to the change in the law. Also, many lawyers and lawmakers have made it clear that there are other ways to deal with the case of Chan and other similar cases. For example, granting Hong Kong jurisdiction over homicide cases committed by Hong Kong permanent residents when they are overseas, which is already the practice in the UK. With regard to the second reason, the last governor of Hong Kong, Chris Patton, made a statement saying that the reason China was not included in the original extradition law of Hong Kong was a deliberate move that took into consideration the great differences in the legal systems and provided a sort of firewall to protect the rule of law in Hong Kong. The former British Foreign Secretary Malcolm Rifkind also stated that there was no loophole, like the current chief executive had claimed, and confirmed that China was very deliberately left out of Hong Kong's extradition legislation during the handover talks between China and Britain. It's probably fair to say, however, that the protests are about more than just the letter of the law. Let's first discuss how people have interpreted this bill and how it directly sparked the initial protests. 
Resistance against the bill actually began in the Legislative Council, or LEGCO, Hong Kong's parliament, when it was first announced. Now, it's a bit of a long and complicated story, but the LEGCO is basically divided into two camps, the pro-Beijing camp and the pro-democracy camp. Long story short, a committee had to be formed to review the bill, but the pro-democrats filibustered and both sides undermined each other's positions to the point that they set up separate committees and tried to hold a meeting at the same time and basically ended up in a huge brawl. Uh, I mean, an actual brawl. Someone was hospitalised afterwards. But eventually the pro-Beijing camp, which I believe is currently the majority in the LegCo, won out, passing a motion to move on to a second reading of the bill at the end of May. This decision sparked both international and local outrage. Locals feared that the law will further erode Hong Kong's freedoms, which have already been damaged by recent cases of the imprisonment of leaders of the 2014 umbrella protests and the case of the kidnapping of the Causeway Bay booksellers. They also feared that those extradited to China may be subjected to China's poor human rights record, which includes accusations of lack of fair trials, coerced confessions and even torture. Lawyers back these points up, stating that although the law says people can't be extradited for political reasons, the onus is actually on the defendant to prove that the charges have been brought on a political basis. Some Hong Kong judges have expressed concern that while they are to act as gatekeepers, their ability to fulfil this role may cave under pressure from Beijing, especially as the final arbiter of the law, the chief executive, is essentially hand-picked by the CCP. An open letter to the chief executive from over 70 NGOs, including Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch and Human Rights Monitor, states, We are worried that the proposed changes will put at risk anyone in the territory of Hong Kong who has carried out work related to the mainland, including human rights defenders, journalists, NGO workers and social workers, even if the person was outside the mainland when the ostensible crime was committed. They also point out that Hong Kong's justice system does not have the scope or possibly even the will to examine China's human rights record and make decisions based on its findings. Everyone from businessmen, religious groups, political leaders and lawyers from other nations have thrown their hats into the ring, saying that the bill should at least be heavily amended to include proper safeguards, if not scrapped altogether. After a silent march of thousands of lawyers opposing the bill took place on the 6th of June, public outrage finally reached a boiling point on Sunday 9th of June, and after much planning and speculation of a turnout in the hundreds of thousands, an all-day march down the main roads of the island saw families, students, old and young, turn out to protest the bill. But as I said earlier, all of this didn't just start because of one proposed amendment to a couple of ordinances. Or at least that seems too simple an explanation as to why a significant proportion of the population suddenly decided to hold a huge protest that extended over several days and even erupted into violence at one point. Why is it that this particular bill has caused such feelings to rise up in the people of Hong Kong and caused events to escalate to where they are now? Why are people in the international community seeking to protect Hong Kong's special status and clamouring to show their solidarity with Hong Kong protesters both online and in person? In truth, the protests over the extradition bill cannot be viewed in isolation, 
but must be understood within the context of Hong Kong's relationship with China and the development of an independent and unique Hong Kong identity that can be traced back as far as the 1840s. So for the rest of this episode, I'd like to try and trace the roots of that identity and try and explain why protests over the extradition bill reflect not only the fears of so many Hong Kong people, but also their determination to fight for what remains of their freedom and independence. To do that, we're first going to have to go back in time around 100 years or so to see how Hong Kong became so unique in its identity and character and how relations with the mainland have been shaped by what happened in the lead up to 1997. first podcast, I spoke at length about the opium wars between China and Britain and the Treaty of Nanjing that was negotiated as a result, so I won't cover the events leading up to Britain's acquisition of Hong Kong in too much detail. The key points were that Britain first obtained Hong Kong Island, followed by Kowloon after the Second Opium War, and then negotiated a 99-year lease for the new territories in 1898. The lease of the new territories was quite peculiar and a completely unique occurrence in British colonial history. During the 19th century, Hong Kong was less an economic powerhouse and more a strategic base, particularly for trading with the newly opened treaty ports in China, and Britain was more interested in protecting its colonial interests against infringement from other colonial powers than it was in thinking about securing them in perpetuity. The agreement to lease the territory was drawn up in a hurry, And it's likely the idea of ever handing part or all of Hong Kong back to China never really crossed the minds of the British at the time. Hong Kong remained the relatively poor and unimpressive younger brother of big Chinese trading hubs like Shanghai for around half a century. And its importance to Britain was dubious, as during the Second World War, it was swiftly captured by the Japanese and remained under their control for around three years. Although... To be fair, there probably was very little that Britain could have done to protect it. Hong Kong's rise came after the communist takeover of the mainland, and between 1950 and the mid-1980s, it managed to secure a position as an economic powerhouse, not only for its colonial masters, but for other major powers looking to expand into Asia. It also remained one of China's only means of contacting and trading with the rest of the world, while it remained closed off under Mao's leadership. Huge numbers of mainlanders fled to Hong Kong every year, providing labour for newly established light industry factories, many of them set up by locals or by mainland businessmen fleeing persecution and asset seizure. Hong Kong still relied on the mainland for large numbers of food imports, but it also quickly adapted to the international market, with Japanese and American companies and trading firms setting up their regional enterprises on the island, meaning multiple currencies were in circulation in Hong Kong at any given time, making Hong Kong a centre of currency exchange as well. It was this period of time that allowed Hong Kong to develop its own unique character, distinct from the mainland, and this is really the basis of the Hong Konger identity that remains strong in comparison to the Chinese identity that is promoted today. While the mainland struggled to industrialise and often lapsed into humanitarian or political disaster in the 50s, 60s and early 70s, Hong Kongers thrived under British laissez-faire capitalist rule, demanding and receiving better working and living standards, universal education, 
setting up their own businesses and being recognised by most of the world not as a colony or trading port, but as basically a developing nation. By the 1980s, Hong Kong was one of the world's biggest financial markets and the world's second largest shipping container port. It had developed a modern consumer culture as well as a thriving civil society. This was not to last, however. Some people have described Hong Kong as a borrowed place living on borrowed time, and I think this really became a reality in the 1980s. Following the death of Mao Zedong in 1976, China's new leader, Deng Xiaoping, implemented a broad range of reforms designed to drag China into modernity and bring it back in contact with the rest of the world, but this time in terms favourable to China. The illusion of an independent Hong Kong acting as a gateway between East and West was shattered when China reminded everyone who would listen that Hong Kong fell under Chinese sovereignty and that the terms of China's inalienable rights over Hong Kong were unquestionable, though they were negotiable. This move kind of took everyone by surprise. Prior to this point, Hong Kong had not really been a priority either for Britain or for China. The colonial era was over, and the people of Hong Kong basically had the right to self-determination under their benign colonial masters, with more and more locals becoming the wealthiest members of society and gaining seats in Hong Kong's official and unofficial advisory councils. In China's case, Beijing had previously stated that Hong Kong and Macau would be brought back into the fold under the same terms as Taiwan, meaning that Taiwan was actually the top priority for Chinese reunification, as China would not suffer the existence of two Chinas. However, as China opened itself up to the world in the late 70s and early 80s, it demanded a seat at the grown-up table almost immediately, and brought up rights to Hong Kong and Macau right away. They pointed out that they had never recognised the unequal treaties, that's the Treaty of Nanjing to you and me, that followed the Opium War, and so they didn't really see a difference between the new territory's lease and the rest of Hong Kong. They flat out refused to extend the lease, and they never would have allowed for anything as ridiculous as Hong Kong independence, as other colonies had received from Britain, or as Singapore had received from Malaysia in the 1960s. When the negotiations finally began in the early 1980s, it was under tense and strange circumstances, with many loose ends and unanswered questions going in. Hong Kong itself would have no part in the discussions, lest the people of the tiny territory believe that they had some claim to future independence. But then that meant that negotiations were to be held between one nation that was acknowledged to have sovereignty and another nation that would lose all relationship with the territory, apart from financial and business relations, after the handover was completed. From China's perspective, Britain was prevaricating over seemingly trivial issues that didn't really concern it before, and certainly wouldn't concern it after the handover. In terms of maintaining Hong Kong's capitalist system under communist rule, and the problem of land leases owned by foreign companies, these questions were answered almost immediately when Deng Xiaoping urged the business community to put their hearts at ease whereas China refused to budge on matters such as the stationing of Chinese troops in Hong Kong. China made it clear that they were playing hardball from the start. They basically said that they would not negotiate unless Britain first agreed to hand over the colony in its entirety and to have nothing to do with it after 1997. However, Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister at the time and aptly named the Iron Lady, 
took the advice of Hong Kong experts who advocated for the continued British administration of Hong Kong after 1997 in order to maintain the status quo. For the Chinese, however, sovereignty was inseparable from administration and Premier Zhao Ziyang stated that if it came down to a choice between sovereignty and prosperity, China would choose sovereignty every time. Britain flat out refused to concede the initial principle in dramatic fashion when, after her first official visit to China, Margaret Thatcher ripped up a prepared script and announced that the treaties with China existed and, quote, we stick by our treaties unless we decide something else. After that, it took almost two years for negotiations to get moving again. But Thatcher was steadfast in her position, as taking bad advice from the Foreign Office regarding Argentina had led to full-scale warfare in the Falklands a few years earlier. In this case, Britain was prepared to go just as hard as China, but the ones who would suffer were those in Hong Kong. The Hong Kong economy fell into a recession, mainly sparked by the doubt caused by the lack of progress in talks between Britain and China. This uncertainty on the part of investors and in the stock market was not good for any party. At the end of the day, China did realise that Hong Kong accounted for around 12% of foreign trade in the early 1980s, and China's reliance on Hong Kong as a gateway to the global economy at the time was undeniable. Allowing the economy of the territory to continually weaken would benefit no one, so eventually, China backed down enough to allow for talks to start up again in 1983, with a deadline for the final agreement for September 1984. The term One Country, Two Systems was first used by Deng Xiaoping in 1982, when he announced that Beijing would not send people down to Hong Kong to rule over the people, and that the way of life, capitalist system, and education of Hong Kong would remain unchanged. This policy was fleshed out in the joint declaration negotiated between China and Britain in a somewhat rushed manner throughout late 1983 and the first half of 1984. The declaration stated that the current laws, economic policy and free port status of Hong Kong would remain unchanged and that the territory would be known as a special administrative region. Hong Kong SAR was to have an independent judiciary, freedom of speech, press and assembly, as well as control over local law enforcement. However, military and international affairs for the territory would be handled from Beijing. Somehow, the British had managed to negotiate that Hong Kong could introduce a form of basic parliamentary democracy that would allow the local population to control some aspects of their own administration. Beijing resisted, but Britain did not want to just hand over the ability for China to select the governor, executive and legislative councils, as well as all of Hong Kong's civil servants, and pretend that the communist rulers would be just as benign as the late colonial rulers had been. The aim of the democratic system would primarily be to erect roadblocks to stop Beijing directly interfering with Hong Kong's internal affairs. The amount of leeway given on each of the core points of the joint declaration, such as democracy, were really decided on a case-by-case -case basis and were largely based on the personal feelings and political beliefs of those who were in charge of the decision-making process at the time. There was never really any consensus, even when people were on the same side, ostensibly. Some British politicians were on the side of the Hong Kongers, while others were on the side of the British and Chinese relations. Some open-minded and liberal Hong Kongers advocated for a full representative democracy, 
while many members of Hong Kong's business elite, who were tantamount to a local aristocracy, felt that only the wealthy and powerful should have any say in Hong Kong's future elections. In the end, wanting to take a tough stance on China gave way to the realisation that Britain's long-term political and economic relations with China were much more important than the moral implications of handing over six million people to a totalitarian regime. At the same time, China had to bite the bullet and negotiate for its own territory and sign a legally binding document with a foreign nation, while also granting that Hong Kong had to keep some of its freedom, otherwise its use to the mainland's development would be nullified once all the international businesses ran scared. This eventually led to the drafting of the Basic Law after the Joint Declaration was signed in 1984. However, the Basic Law was even more hotly contested and would remain a point of contention up until its implementation in 1997. When it came to the Basic Law, Beijing didn't want Britain to have any say, but the drafting committee did feature 23 Hong Kongers out of a total of 59 members which included lawyers, businessmen, and some leading public figures in society, some of whom were pro-Beijing and some of whom were not. Though the point of the committee was merely supposed to be to put the joint declaration into a binding constitution, because of the thorny issues of democracy and citizenship, they remained to be figured out until the last moment. In the end, Britain was heavily consulted, particularly on the issue of the elections, which it had nominally negotiated in 1984 and was still trying to implement in the 80s and 90s while it still had control over the territory. In the end, all sides managed to reach a compromise. Today, half of Hong Kong's Legislative Council are elected through universal suffrage, and the other half are elected by what's called functional constituencies which are basically special interest groups with limited suffrage, usually representing the interests of corporations or trade bodies. Another issue that remained hotly debated into the 90s was that of the right of abode in the UK for those born in Hong Kong, roughly 3.3 million people. This became a critical issue as Hong Kong experienced a huge brain drain throughout the late 1980s that received heavy international coverage. Some of Hong Kong's most qualified workers left for places like Australia and Canada to work in fast food restaurants or low-end jobs well below their pay grade just to get out of the country. Singapore overtook Hong Kong to become the number two exchange in Asia in 1989, as many dealers and financial experts emigrated, with at least 30,000 people leaving Hong Kong in 1987 alone. Many believed that the promise to allow native Hong Kongers to flee to Britain after 1997, if life under Chinese rule became too unbearable, would stem the brain drain for the time being and save the British government some face. However, British ministers faced criticism and accusations of heartlessness as they stuck to their usual austerity, even as France promised the right of abode for all those working in French companies in Hong Kong. The Tiananmen incident in Beijing in 1989 only made things worse. After June 4th, the Australian consulate received 1,000 visa applications per day. People began looking to anywhere where immigration restrictions were lax, including Panama, Belize, Jamaica and even Tonga. When the Singapore government announced that it would expand their immigration quota to 25,000, one Singaporean immigration office reportedly received 12,000 applications in one day. 
A survey taken after the Tiananmen massacre shows that 60% of lawyers, 80% of accountants and 90% of government doctors intended to leave Hong Kong before the handover. Facing this level of embarrassment, coupled with the pressure from Hong Kong groups and activists, the British government finally responded. 50,000 passports would be allocated to the heads of families based on a point system, allowing as many as 225,000 people to emigrate to the UK after 1997. It's safe to say that many were concerned about the Chinese takeover from the start of the talks in the late 1970s. Hardly anyone, except for those in the pro-Beijing camp, or those with strong affinity to their Chinese identity, believed that Hong Kong would actually be ruled by the CCP as benignly as it had been by the British for almost half a century. This was especially true after 1989, when the majority of those seeking residency elsewhere were Hong Kong's top, and those urging them to stay were those with major financial interests in Hong Kong. Again, there was no consensus on either side. It's not like every single person was trying to leave the country. But the wavering heart of Hong Kong showed. From the start of the handover negotiations in 1984 until the official handover date in 1997, nearly one million people emigrated, and Hong Kong suffered a serious loss of human and financial capital. Those who did stay either did not have the means to emigrate or did not want to leave their home. Today, many of those who did stay still fight for their right to self-determination, as was promised in the Joint Declaration and the Basic Law. There's a, uh, a salvo of tear gas canisters fired in the direction of the protesters. That is sending thousands of these young people running. The debate may have been delayed by sheer logistics. How do lawmakers get into a building that is surrounded by tens of thousands of screaming young Hong Kongers. The protesters succeeded in doing what, what organizers say were more than a million peaceful protesters on the streets of Hong Kong failed to do on Sunday. On Wednesday the 12th of June 2019, a further smaller protest was organized for the daytime and was attended by some few thousand mainly young residents. They had gathered to block a second reading of the amendment bill with some having arrived at Tamar Park near the legislature the day before, with online posts inviting people to join in a picnic the next day. Lawmakers led the crowd in chants, encouraging civil disobedience and urging more people to come out and protest, even as crowds thinned throughout the afternoon due to rain. At some point in the afternoon, police began firing tear gas into the crowd in order to get them to disperse. They then began to move forward, using batons and pepper spray on individual protesters to try and move the crowd back and away from the legislature. As the protesters regrouped in nearby areas and shopping malls, at some point the police declared that the protest had escalated into a riot and called for more extensive use of force, including the firing of rubber bullets and beanbag rounds. As the crowd surged back against the police, Reports stated that at least 80 people were injured, including eight police officers. Video and images circulated showing police officers beating helpless protesters with batons, spraying pepper spray at point-blank rage into people's faces, and one male protester lying unconscious on the ground, covered in blood. The Hong Kong and Chinese government were quick to denounce the attendees as rioters, at once transforming them from lawful protesters into violent criminals. 
Ambulances and volunteers with supplies rushed to where the crowd now gathered near Hong Kong's central station, erecting a barricade and waiting throughout the night in dramatic standoff fashion for further clashes with the police that were never to come. The Hong Kong police, formerly referred to as Asia's finest for their restraint and professionalism, now stand accused of excessive force and brutality against their own people. The police department, also known for their apolitical stance, are also charged with being influenced by Beijing, and now the only reliable support for the force comes from politicians themselves. Some members of the police force hit back, pointing out that they had no choice but to follow orders, with one young officer complaining that the media failed to accurately report the situation and omitted images of protesters throwing bricks and other objects at the police, calling into question who really fired the first shot. As fears over the increasing brutality of the police force reflect broader fears over the gradual takeover of Hong Kong by the mainland, locals worry that what was once not acceptable in Hong Kong will soon become acceptable as that's how it is on the mainland. This isn't the first time that Hong Kong's police force has been called out, however, as anti-mainland sentiment has burst forth a number of times since 1997, leading to mass demonstrations that can be viewed as precursors to the ones that occurred over June this year. status as a special administrative region means that, technically speaking, Hong Kongers do have the right to feel distinct from their mainland counterparts. They're governed by different laws, enjoy different rights, and anyone who lives in Hong Kong and has visited the mainland, like myself, can tell you that the two places are worlds apart in terms of local culture and attitudes. Apart from the continued migration to other parts of the world since the handover, Studies have shown that, as the deadline for the full transition in 2047 draws ever closer, young Hong Kongers are tightening their ranks around their identity. A survey entitled The Identity and National Identification of Hong Kong People was carried out by the Chinese University of Hong Kong in 2014. It shows that the number of people identifying either as Hong Kongese exclusively or mixed Chinese but also Hong Kongese has increased slightly since 1996, from around 73% to around 89%. In contrast, the percentage of those who identify strictly as Chinese has dropped from around 25% to around 9%. It also shows that pride or affection for symbols such as Hong Kong's flag or the Cantonese language have increased slightly, whereas aversion to mainland symbols such as the Great Wall, Putonghua, and the national anthem have risen slightly. Peaks in strong identification as a Hong Konger tend to be coupled with attempts by the mainland to undermine the distinctiveness of Hong Kong, which is usually also accompanied by some sort of backlash. Many of those who identify strongly as Hong Konger are also those who want to defend Hong Kong's uniqueness and who have shown up in a range of different ways over the past two decades, in order to protect that uniqueness and special status. In 2003, around half a million protesters took to the streets just after the deadly SARS outbreak to protest the then-proposed national security law. The law would have given the government the authority to ban local groups with ties to any organisation banned by the CCP, the power to conduct searches without warrants, 
and the ability to impose life imprisonment sentences for acts of treason, sedition, theft of state secrets and subversion. The protesters feared the suppression of the freedom of speech and the protest was the largest that had been seen on the territory since the 1989 Tiananmen Square massacre sparked similar demonstrations throughout Hong Kong. The law was never passed and the then chief executive, Tang Chi Hua, resigned shortly afterwards. In 2012, 100,000 protesters marched against the introduction of a controversial change to Hong Kong's education system known as the Moral and National Education. The protesters criticised the biased nature of the materials, which praised the Communist Party as an advanced, selfless and united ruling group, and denounced the Democratic and Republican parties of the United States as a fierce inter-party rivalry that makes the people suffer. Though the curriculum was abandoned in part after the protests, many patriotic elements still slipped through, such as the compulsory teaching of Chinese history in secondary schools. From September to December 2014, hundreds of thousands of sit-in protesters participated in what is now known as the Occupy Central or Umbrella Movement. The cause was basically an extension of the democratic election controversy that had plagued the initial negotiations of the joint declaration and basic law that we spoke about earlier. While the basic law stated that the chief executive would eventually be elected through universal suffrage, Beijing stepped in to announce that people could vote for one of any three pre-selected candidates for that position, after which the popularly elected candidate would be officially appointed by the CCP. Protesters called for the retraction of the law, the institution of true universal suffrage, and the immediate resignation of the then chief executive, C.Y. Lung. Many of the tactics used by police more recently, such as the denouncing of the protests as riots and the use of tear gas, were first implemented during this protest in 2014. The protesters gained no ground, and the bill passed anyway, with many commentators and news outlets pointing out that the One Country, Two Systems policy had now completely failed. Many of the movement's leaders gained international fame, with some of them being imprisoned and others fleeing Hong Kong to seek asylum and continue their quest for free speech. Looking back at these protests, which represent just the largest handful of demonstrations in Hong Kong's recent history, the June 2019 protests can be understood not as an isolated set of events that escalated to violence seemingly out of nowhere. Instead, these protests have clearly formed from the feeling amongst many Hong Kongers that they must protect their unique identity, which was formed during the colonial period, and from their perspective has been threatened by the mainland in a variety of ways leading up to and ever since the handover in 1997. My relevant colleagues and I have made our best efforts, but I have to admit that our explanation and communication work has not been sufficient or effective. Although many people agreed with our two original proposals, there are still polarized opinions on the bill. There are supporting views and opposing ones, and their stances are very often polarized. Furthermore, Many members of the public still have concerns and doubts about the bill. Some find it difficult to understand why the urgency and are unhappy with the process of the amendments. 
Thankful for the views of many pro-establishment legislators and leaders of various community sectors conveyed to me over the last uh, few days, either openly or in private, that we should pause and think instead of resuming the second reading debate on the bill at the Legislative Council as scheduled. After our repeated internal deliberations over the last two days, I now announce that the government has decided to suspend the legislative amendment exercise, restart our communication with all sectors of society, do more explanation work, and listen to different views of society. I want to stress that the government is adopting an open mind to heed comprehensively different views in society towards the bill. The Secretary for Security will send a letter to the Legislative Council President to withdraw the notice of resumption of a second reading. Debate. On Saturday the 15th of June 2019, Carrie Lam officially announced that she would suspend the extradition bill and delay a second reading indefinitely in order to restore calmness in Hong Kong society. She expressed deep sorrow and regret over how things had escalated and stated that she felt personally responsible for not communicating effectively with the population, which she vowed to do in the future. This did not prevent a protest taking place the next day, however, which saw possibly two million Hong Kong residents take to the same route they had the previous week, this time to call for the resignation of the chief executive. The protesters held signs condemning police violence the previous Wednesday and stating that the people tear-gassed and shot by police were peaceful protesters and not rioters. They called for an independent inquiry into police brutality, as well as continuing to call for the retraction of the controversial bill. White flowers were also laid outside a building in Central to commemorate a protest organiser who had fallen to his death while hanging a protest banner on the building. Since that Sunday, little has been seen or heard from Carrie Lam, except for on one occasion where she appeared to commend the police for their bravery and correct action during the protests. Some more smaller protests have been organised since, including one dated for today, the 1st of July, which is also the day that commemorates the official handover of Hong Kong to China in 1997. However, coverage of that and subsequent developments will have to wait until the next episode. So in the next episode, we'll be discussing arguments opposing the protests and condemning the protesters, both from official mainland Chinese news outlets, members of Hong Kong society, and from random comments and posts that I could scrounge up online. It was actually more difficult than I thought it would be to find dissenting ideas, but hopefully in the upcoming week, I can also find some Chinese language news sources that I can sort of translate and cobble together really quickly. Uh, just to give you an idea of what people on the other side of the aisle really think about what's going on in Hong Kong. In the meantime, thanks so much for listening, and I hope you tune in to the next episode. Hey, boy,